Odd Trails contains adult language and content. If you have a story to share, send it to stories at oddtrails.com. Enjoy the show. Forget facts. Forget logic. Forget everything that seems real. Just trust. Believe. During my junior year of college, I studied abroad at a university on the South Island of New Zealand. Towards the end of the semester, my roommate and I wanted to try and fit in one last weekend hiking trip before we had to leave and go home to the U.S. We decided to go to Milford Sound, which is a fjord on the South Island. It's possible to see dolphins and penguins while hiking out there. It's an amazing place. New Zealand's seasons are the opposite of ours in the U.S., so it was pretty cold and rainy at that point. It was now the off-season for hikers, so when we made it to the hostel, there was nobody else staying there. No one was even there to check us in. We had to get a key from a lockbox. It was a little unsettling since my roommate and I were the only ones in this large hostel. It was kind of tucked away in the woods, and it was nighttime and raining when we got there. When we walked around, it sort of felt like a liminal space. There were several common spaces, and all of the bunk beds were in one large room. So everyone that was staying there slept in the same room on the bunk beds. We woke up early the morning after we arrived at the hostel and went out hiking all day. When we got back around sunset, we went to the bunk room and we saw two women sitting on the ground next to some of the bunk beds. We introduced ourselves, and we were pretty willing to be friendly since they were another duo of female travelers around our age. They were from Sweden. We chatted for a while, and then my roommate and I spent some time in the kitchen before going to bed. Now, we had to get up extremely early in the morning, and we wanted to be considerate to the two girls who were now sleeping in the bunk room with us. We had packed a lot the night before, and the next morning, We shoved everything else that we needed to pack into our backpacks in the dark in the bunk room. The other girls were asleep and the room was completely dark. We went out into the hall and took a few steps before we realized that I had left my wallet on the bed. I opened the door to go back into the bunk room to get it. The wall lamp on the other side of the room was on and one of the girls was sitting in a chair underneath it. They had slept on the opposite side of the room from the chair and the lamp, so it was a little weird that she had woken up, gotten out of bed, and crossed this giant room, turned on the lamp, and sat down in just the few seconds that I had been in the hall. There hadn't been enough time between us leaving that dark room with them sleeping to what I was seeing now. She was in the far away corner of the room so I couldn't see her too well, especially in the dim light from the lamp that she was under. She said hi. I recognized her accent from the night before. I gave a small wave 
and grabbed my wallet from my bed. She leaned forward slightly in her chair and said, Come here. I looked at her and realized that her face wasn't the same face from the night before. Her face now looked completely different. It looked like my older sister's face. It was unnerving staring at this stranger in the corner who suddenly had my sister's face. It wasn't even my sister's present-day face either. It was her rounder and younger face from early high school. But this girl still had her voice and the Swedish accent. She kept repeating, Come here to me. I got a horrible feeling of dread. I felt like if I went over to her, something bad would happen. I stood against the wall for a bit and then exited the room as quickly as possible. When I turned to close the bunk room door, the last thing I saw was my sister's face staring back at me from the far side of the room, smiling under the lamplight. I have no idea what happened, but it was not a coincidence. I had talked for a while to this traveler the night before, and she looked nothing like my sister. I won't say that she appeared this way due to tricky lighting either because there was no mistaking it. It was definitely my sister's face that I was looking at. For context and backstory, I first have to bring you to a sad place. I apologize in advance. In 2005, I was a senior in high school. My life was looking bright, and I was excited for the future. I wanted to move out of my rural Minnesota town and go to a university in Texas with my best friend and get a PhD in psychology and psychiatry. That was until my mom sat me down one day and told me that she went to the doctor about the headaches she'd been played with for over a week. She told me they did a full-body CT and that she had lung cancer that not only started there, but had spread quite heavily to her brain, brainstem, and her entire lymphatic system. She had over 20 tumors in her brainstem alone. She was terminal and they told her to make short goals to accomplish during her remaining time alive. She said she wanted to attend my high school graduation, which was only three months away, but they said to aim shorter. I immediately dropped any plan of moving off my radar and enrolled in the local community college for general classes so I could remain home with her and be her caregiver. She made it to my high school graduation. Her second goal was to attend my brother's wedding. She didn't make that one. She passed on July 8th, 2006. My mom was my best friend. I was so completely lost without her. I threw myself into taking care of my dad and teaching him how to survive without her, cooking and cleaning while he was working and writing his checks to pay his bills and teaching him how to do so himself. One morning, I was just floating through my day. I was incredibly restless, anxious, and sad. My dad was at work. I sat on the couch to stop pacing, and suddenly, I hear what sounds like a music box playing Happy Birthday. I'm alone in the house. What is going on? 
I very slowly start to follow the song into the empty bedroom upstairs next to the dining room. In this room was a set of bunk beds that had been there for years. On the top bunk, I see a single radiant beam of sunlight coming through the blinds and shining on a candle. This candle was shaped like a crab and said, 40 and still crabby on it. It plays happy birthday when lit. It had been a gift my mother got from her best friend and had been on the top of this bunk for over a year after my mom tossed it there. I picked it up and carried it with me back to the couch as it played through three more times before stopping. I stood there in awe for a moment and then I quickly jumped up and looked at the calendar on the wall. It was August 15th, 2006, what would have been my mother's 50th birthday. I started crying immediately and said, I didn't forget, Mom, I promise. I quickly called my grandma and told her about what just happened, and we cried together as she rejoiced that my mom came to see me. It was both incredibly sad and heartwarming. This isn't the only time that she has come to see me, but it's all I have for this story. If you have a relationship with your mom, give her an extra hug for me. I miss mine. Back in 2021, I had a lucid dream about dying. Now, I want to use the term dream lightly because this was too real. The following is a message I sent to my friend just minutes after I woke up. Some things have been edited to hide personal information. I just had the most terrifying dream, and I don't know if I'll be able to sleep again for a while. I was in bed falling asleep when I started coughing a lot and eventually started to lose consciousness. It felt like I was falling asleep, but it felt different. My arms and hands hurt, and they felt like the muscles in them were being ripped from my skin. After I fell asleep, my soul lifted out of my body and I could see and feel myself die. I floated above my corpse until morning, trying to figure out what had just happened because I had no idea what was going on. Then I saw my mom walk into the room and she tried to wake me up, but couldn't. She started crying and held me. For the next seven days, I tried to wake myself up until my corpse disappeared. I was able to go back in time and experience things when I was four, spending time with my cousins playing video games in my home country. Then I was able to experience asking my girlfriend out and dating her. Now this went back and forth as I tried to figure out if I had really died, or if this was all in a dream. Like I said, I was trying to wake my corpse up. Now I, as a spirit, kept appearing on this small bridge as I looked at my entire life through a vision in the sky. Behind me, there looked like a building or a church being built, and in front of me, there was just light. The place was probably purgatory. After failing to wake up my dead corpse, I was able to call a friend and tell them that I was dead and I was a spirit. So I chose my girlfriend and I told her everything I had experienced. 
She told me that I had been dead for four days, and she didn't know what to do. I told her that I didn't think that I was dead because I felt alive as a spirit, but at the same time I felt trapped and sentient, able to communicate with her. I had the opportunity to experience things that I used to do with her, like playing Mario Brothers and watching movies and kissing, but I could only see it through the vision in the sky. I couldn't feel it. I told my girlfriend to tell my friends that there was nothing to worry about and that I was alive and hopefully I would get my body back. No one believed her and they thought that she was depressed or going crazy. She talked to my mom about it and my mom thought that she was onto something. I told my girlfriend to tell my mom only things that I knew, and that's how my mom knew that we were communicating. I couldn't talk to my mom at all, but I could watch my mom and my girlfriend talking through this vision in the sky. After a few more days, I had given up and started telling my girlfriend what I wanted my funeral to be like, and who I wanted there, and for some reason, most importantly, what I wanted to wear in the casket. I chose a suit similar to the one that my grandpa was buried in. I was on the bridge, watching the construction of this building, when I saw this timer in the sky for five minutes. Somehow, I flew up with no control and was pulled into the vision. Everything went black. I was small. I was about 12 or 13 again. I spawned in the apartments my parents used to live in. The lights were all off. And then I saw my mom in the living room on the couch. She was crying. I walked up to her and she hugged me. I was able to feel again, but I still felt like I wasn't in my own body. My mom explained how she was happy to see me and that she always believed my girlfriend. I explained to her what was going on and how I'd been trying to wake myself up from death. I asked her where my corpse was and it didn't look like she wanted to answer, but she said that it was in my parents' room. I walked over and I saw a pair of jeans and an old t-shirt on the bed. I touched them, thinking that maybe I was underneath it, but I wasn't. My mom came in and told me that those were the clothes that I was in when I died. My corpse was actually in the closet. She opened it, and I walked in. I looked to my right and saw a pair of jeans and shoes propped up on a shelf. I felt them, and I was able to feel my legs. I removed and separated the shirts that were hanging in the closet, and I saw my dead body propped up on a shelf like a puppet. My hair was long. I had chubby cheeks. It looked exactly like me when I was 12. It was a pair of jeans and a blue, red, and white pattern button-up shirt. That part is going to scar me for life. I was looking at my dead body. My mom walked in and touched the corpse's face, and she told me that she missed me a lot and to come back. I told her that I was coming back. Then suddenly everything turned white. I woke up and I started coughing again, almost choking on my own spit. I was back in my room, my normal room. I wasn't 12. Everything was normal. I sat up in my bed and I burst into tears. I've never experienced anything so real in my life. I've never had a dream that felt like real life, even though I was doing things that I couldn't do in the real world. Has anyone ever had an experience like this? I think the most scarring part of this experience 
was seeing my dead body multiple times and my loved ones' reactions to my death. I started working for a local funeral home in 2009. I loved it there. I had my own office with windows. I felt I was finally moving up. Even Seth, my boss, asked if I was sure I'd never worked in a funeral home before. The business office was an old house built around 1935. It used to be the mortician's home. When I had some downtime, I could look around the old house. One room had old funeral records all the way back to the 30s. For as light and welcoming as the business office was, the funeral home seemed to be the opposite. The muted silence of the thickly piled carpet. The sashed curtains barely let in the shadowed light hiding behind the shears, as if it did not want to come inside. Thankfully, I didn't have to go there much. I hated being over there. I always felt like there was someone or something lurking in the shadows. Students working their way through mortuary college worked as funeral attendants. They were the lowly ones on call at all hours for removals. Convenient. Live there, bring the dead there, prep the dead there, then go to bed there. One day, I received a call from the service tech. He said he'd gotten an emergency call and had to leave and he couldn't remember if he had shut the door. He was rambling like he was crazy. I asked if everything was okay. Yeah, yeah, he said in short bursts. Sorry about the door. Side note, he never came back. I went across the parking lot to the funeral home and turned on the overhead lights. They sputtered, then went out. I turned around. It felt like someone was there, maybe a student from upstairs. No one. Come on, I said to myself. It's just a place to perform a service to keep the dead from decay, to pretty them up for their last public appearance. Nothing weird, nothing out of the ordinary. I saw the fluorescent lights of the prep room ahead. The air felt like it had shifted, but I just felt strange not alone. Stop it, nothing here, I said out loud to myself. Just you and that dead guy. Who was it? Mr. Spaulding? And he's got nothing to say. I laughed a little too loudly. Nervous laughter. I hated this. Show some respect, I heard a voice say. I swear that voice came from behind me. Reluctantly, I turned around, expecting to see Tad, one of the directors. No one. Leave. You don't belong here. I wanted to just leave. Now. Shut that door. Get out. I reached the door and slammed it shut. To hell with turning off the light. Spaulding ain't gonna care. Get out. The hell with this. There was that presence getting closer, 
like if I didn't hurry the hell up, I was going to be pushed. I swore I felt fingers on me. Get out. You don't belong here. The voice continued to say. I don't remember taking the steps, but I must have, because the next thing I realized, I was outside breathing in the fresh air in deep gasps. I looked back, no big nasty following me out. Two weeks or so later, Susan and I were killing time on a Friday, just talking. I learned Susan, a funeral attendant, was a huge believer in the paranormal. Hey, I started. Uh, I have something to tell you, but I don't want you to think I'm nuts. I work here, don't I? She asked with a chuckle. I mean, look at my intended profession. Go on, what? I proceeded to tell her about what happened to me a few weeks back. She sat back with a bemused smile on her face. You think I'm crazy. No, no, I don't. You just solidified something for me. How so? I asked, as I pushed papers aside on my desk and leaned forward, intrigued. When my friend Jane was helping me move in, she asked if I knew there was a spirit here. I said I didn't. What do you mean? She proceeded to tell me about a shadow man on the porch. He stood, arms crossed. She had two feelings from him, disapproval and protection. She didn't understand that. She also didn't understand why he seemed blue to her. Not sad, but something about the color blue. A few days later, when I was on the phone with my mother, I mentioned the basement incident and told her what Susan told me. There was a long silence from my mother, and then she said, We called him the Indigo Man. Wait, what? I asked, dumbfounded. The Indigo Man, she repeated matter-of-factly. We would see him sometimes in the shadows or just at dusk. I swear he lingers in the funeral home, too. That would account for so much, not just the prep room incident, but the shadows in the windows I tried to chalk off as lamps. Once when I was in the basement, I swore I saw a figure back in the darker, unfinished part. It all seemed to fit. She continued, Yeah, when I was a little girl, my grandmother told me about a man who worked the grounds there and took it upon himself to watch over the funeral home. She said he kept the boys in check by just standing there, arms crossed. His skin was a deep blue. He didn't have to say a word. Well, I never knew him. He was gone before my time. Interesting. What's with the blue, though? Apparently, he and his family had moved up from Kentucky years ago, and they had a dark bluish tint. They never really went out much, but the legend went. After his son and wife died, the funeral home showed him compassion. A lot of people didn't because of their difference. They let him be the groundskeeper and live above the funeral home in a little apartment. Maybe his spirit still hangs on out of respect and loyalty. I passed this information on to Susan and she said, Maybe we need to go talk to him. Jane said he's harmless. 
I remembered the feeling, the fear. Um, maybe I should just stay away from that whole thing. No, she said. If we tell him who you are, what you do, he might change towards you. After work, we headed next door. I was nervous, scared. She flipped the light switch on, but nothing happened. I felt a knot of fear in my belly, and then I said, Oh, I forgot to tell you, the lights burnt out the other day. No, I replaced them. Seth asked me to, and they just burnt out again. That's just great. Lights always go out before a ghost comes. We went upstairs and she began talking to the indigo man. Hello. I just wanted to let you know who we are and why we're here. We left the room and made our way back down the stairs, stood in the reception area between the viewing rooms. That smell, that closeness, I felt eyes on me. It was so weird. He's here, I think, she said quietly. You know who I am. I work here. I live here. You know I wouldn't hurt this building. She works here too. She nudged me gently as if to say, go on. I straightened my back, took a deep breath, then said, My name is Emma. I work next door so you don't see me much. I don't do the same job Susan does, but that doesn't mean I don't care for this place. I stopped. What else do you say? I had no idea. She nodded, then we headed downstairs, taking the same awkward, uneven cement steps that I had previously taken to the garage. I stopped. I didn't want to do this. I mean, it was terrifying. Feeling like you're being stalked by something that is wanting you to get out as quickly as possible. I mean, clearly I wasn't wanted. Sensing my hesitation, she nodded. It's okay. If you're going to work here, you might as well make some kind of attempt to coexist with him. We headed to the prep room. Relax, nothing in here is going to hurt you, I promise. She gave me a knowing side glance. I chuckled softly. Oppressive coldness enveloped me. My breath caught in my throat. I tried to breathe softly, quietly. I swear I felt a hand on my shoulder. Nope, I want to leave. She continued talking. Hi again, listen, I mean it when I tell you Emmett isn't going to hurt this place. Quite the opposite. The reason you don't see her is because she works next door. She shows them as much compassion and dignity as the rest of us do. I think she has a harder job, really. She takes the informant's calls right when their loved ones die. Sometimes she hears the family crying in the background. I nodded mutely. She nudged me again. I never looked at it that way. I just figured I was the person that had to take the information to proceed with the inevitable. So I began talking again. Hi, um, Emma again. But I guess you know that. I mumbled stupidly. I continued. Yeah, I take care of the paperwork and help the families get what they want to honor their loved ones. I kind of work behind the scenes. The air started to tighten. 
and I still felt that hand on my shoulder, but somehow I felt a little less afraid. I promise I will do my best to take care of this funeral home and make sure the grounds are taken care of. I am sure that means a lot to you. The room started to feel lighter. The chill was gone. I still felt the hand on my shoulder. A squeeze, almost like an affirmation. Then it was gone. I smiled and took a deep breath. Thank you, I said softly. As we headed out, I noticed the burnt-out lights were on. All of them. One day I had to get some supplies for the business office, and I felt the presence. I was reaching up to get the first call cards, and I felt the gentle squeeze on my shoulder. Most would freak out, but I knew who it was. I just smiled and said, Hello. I need to clarify that while religious, I'm not particularly superstitious, and despite looking at and exploring many abandoned locations, such as the sites of horrific tragedies like old battlegrounds and massacres, I never experienced or truly believed in anything paranormal or unexplained. This story is the one and only experience that has made me even consider the possibility of otherworldly forces or things that I can't rationally explain. If I hadn't experienced this personally, I would assume with a great deal of certainty that it's complete crap. So, for some context of the area that I was in, my great-uncle owns a lot of land in northern Canada. Some of this was pasture that he uses for cattle, but half of one of his largest properties is fenced off, meaning the cows can't get in that area. In the sectioned-off lactose-free zone, the entire place is densely packed with foliage. The ground itself is blotted with some small, steep hills towards the entrance of the property. There is this one main dirt road that goes from a gate at the entrance all the way back to the farthest side of the property. It comes off of the road in the hilly area, which is where we have a camp. The camp consists of a camperized Atco trailer. Picture a big yellow sea can. It's in front of the entrance. Perpendicular to that is my mother's trailer. Behind hers was my own tiny dingy 14-foot trailer from the 70s. This meant that I could have privacy at the camp and not have to sleep with my mom. Both mine and my mom's doors were facing the Atco trailer, meaning there was a pseudo-alleyway of sorts. And finally, in front of the Atco trailer, we have a fire pit. Next to it is a table for food prep. I'm sorry for this lengthy explanation, but I feel like in order for the sequence of events to make sense, you'll need to understand where I was, and maybe locations will make my reference points more clear for explaining later. We've always had a lot of wildlife, like big cats and bears that could harm people. So, since I was young, I learned to recognize the sounds and sights around me. And while cautious, I'm rarely afraid of anything out there, 
especially given that I'm usually armed when I'm not with multiple people. The summer before last, we had a remarkably calm experience. There were hardly any critters that we had to deal with, and it seemed like the bears and pests were leaving us alone. The camp that usually took two days to set up was exactly how we left it on the previous trip. It was peaceful. It being summer, I filled the days with woodworking, fishing trips, and the occasional hike, looking for berries and setting up traps for small game that could quickly be prepared over the fire, but I mostly came up unlucky. Regardless of this lack of disturbance, we were always careful at night, making sure to have bright lights and keep a lookout for anything. After the first week, we began hearing noises around the camp very late, which would drive the dog insane all night, to the point that we just had to keep her inside. We never saw anything, but it almost felt like whatever it was was probably probing and checking out our camp nightly, yet always staying far enough away and hidden enough that we could never see it with our spotlights. Then one night, just like any other, I left my mother's camper a couple of hours after daylight had disappeared. I had a lantern-style LED light. As a rarity, I didn't have anything to defend myself, no gun, no bear spray, not even a knife. So I was a little bit more cautious and observant than usual, given I felt more vulnerable. As I walked to the exit of my mom's camper, I looked around for a minute, scanning the tree line, and then began to loop around to my door. I panned as I walked from right to left from the entrance to the fire pit and then to the table. It was there, just behind the table, not twenty feet away, that I saw a naked, extremely pale, almost gray and lanky, humanoid figure. It was standing still and directly facing me. As it caught my gaze, I felt my heart drop and immediately went cold. I probably only stared at it for three seconds at most, but it felt like several minutes as my brain processed what I was seeing. It stood somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half feet tall, with low slumped shoulders, and had a frail, thin body with disproportionately long limbs. I couldn't see the legs fully because of the table, but what I could see looked like sinew and skin stretched over the leanest and thinnest body I had ever seen. I know I might be sounding dramatic, but I couldn't describe the primal fear and shock that came over me. It was like a combination of the feeling you get being threatened at gunpoint and hearing something stalk you in the woods, but also ramped up to the point where I could barely think. I couldn't make out any details of the face, but the light cast small shadows on the face that made it look like it had shallow features, similar to a nose and lips and eye sockets that were smoothed down, almost like Voldemort and Slenderman's love child. I ran like my life depended on it to my door. Once inside, I grabbed the shotgun, stuffed several shells into my pocket, loaded the gun, and aimed it at the door. I sat in silence waiting for the doorknob to turn and for the frosted glass to break. I sat and waited for hours into the early morning, expecting to see and hear something, but I never did. Not even any foliage or items moving. Eventually, at around 4 a.m., I lowered my guard, propped the shotgun next to my bed, and hesitantly went to sleep. When I woke up, 
I searched the area to see if there were any shapes or items that would have warped my mind into seeing that creature. But the only thing in that area was the table with some pots and pans on it that were blackened from the fire. I'm still not quite sure what to make of it, but I do have some ideas. I believe that it was stalking us and staking out our camp for several nights. The fact that it positioned itself between mine and my mother's camper directly in front of the path that I took every night leads me to believe that it had some level of intelligence comparable to how a person would lay a trap. As I mentioned, I looked around after exiting my mother's camper and never heard anything, which tells me that it was either waiting there, watching, or it's so incredibly quiet that I never even heard it move a leaf which wouldn't line up with all of the disturbances that we would frequently hear on other nights. It also left as quietly as it appeared, which leaves three options. One, it went out of its way to use the same road entering the camp that a person would. Two, it silently crept through the game trails. Or three, it didn't leave until after I lowered my guard and my adrenaline died down. I'm honestly not sure which option is more likely or more off-putting. Who knows what I saw, but I know that it was not human. I've seen photos and drawings of cryptid humanoid crawlers, and they remind me a great deal of it, so I thought I'd share. Maybe one of you could enlighten me as to what it could have been doing, its intent, or provide an explanation to its behavior. I know it's not worth much online, but hand to God, I swear this isn't a piece of fanciful writing and I would be happy to share any other details if anyone wants more information or further clarification. My siblings and I seem to have all had experiences with the same spirit. My sister and I have only caught a glimpse but my brother's gotten a good look many times. The spirit has a stereotypical horror movie look. It appears as a pale woman, average height, thin, with long, dark hair down to at least her waist. Her hair is dirty, oily, down to the ends, so it almost looks wet. She wears a white dress or gown, also very dirty and yellowed. Her feet are dirty too. She seems to always appear barefoot, her skin is sickly white and veiny. I only saw her once and got the impression that she was ill, like physically diseased. My brother is the only one of us who's seen her face. He says anytime he's seen her, she's looking right at him, usually standing over him when he's laying down or looming behind him, smiling excessively like she means to taunt him. He woke up to see her standing beside his bed most nights for a year or more. He says that she made him too scared to move, that she was smiling but looked like she hated him. He said she whispered something to that effect to him before too. He even saw her in the backseat of his car once and almost crashed. I've only seen her once, in a dream. I'm standing in the bedroom the three of us had to share in the small apartment we moved into right after our parents divorced. It's dark in the room, but I can see the lamp in the living room is on, so I walk to it. Standing in the living room, I see that the kitchen light is on. 
The kitchen had a bar over the countertop and a row of cabinets drilled into the ceiling, so they made a long, narrow window. The woman was suspended in the air, laying flat like on a bed. The first thing I saw was her oily hair dangling. Then I noticed the backs of her arms and hands, her dress hanging from her, the backs of her calves, and the dirty black heels of her feet. She was high enough off the ground that the upper cabinets blocked everything else. The dream had an uncomfortable feeling, like I had wandered in and was seeing something I wasn't supposed to. I remember being afraid of her and wanting to leave before she noticed me. Then I woke up, and that was it. My brother and I were swapping ghost stories a few years later, and I told him about it. He had never mentioned his experiences with the woman to me before that, and I spilled it all after. I asked why he never brought her up, and he said seeing her made him feel crazy. He felt relieved when he heard I saw her too. We called our sister and asked if she'd ever seen anything in the many places we'd lived in as kids, making a point not to share what we had just talked about. She told us that she had seen the dark silhouette of a woman with long hair in a light-colored dress one night, watching her from the hallway of the apartment in my dream. She and my brother were both awake for their experiences. My sister experienced sleep paralysis for the first time in the divorce apartment. She never saw anything when this happened, just felt something malevolent in the room with her. Her sleep paralysis continued onto my grandmother's apartment who they moved in with after I got married and moved away. That's where and around the time my brother started to see her. She tormented him for a long time. I didn't have my dream until some years after she stopped, and he hasn't seen her since. I think about it a lot, and wonder what she is, how long she followed us around, why she was so bold and aggressive with my brother, but not my sister and I, and why she stopped. For my brother's sake, though, I'm glad that she did. Back in episode 62, we featured a story called Backseat Smile. Narrating the story you just heard gave me a little deja vu, even if they weren't likely the same entity. Mm. In the Backseat Smile story, they could only make out a dark silhouette in addition to the huge creepy smile itself. In this story, it's a pale woman in a white dress, but she also has a sinister smile and appears in the backseat of a car. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm just easily amused by the fact neither of them wanted to ride shotgun. I think it's the mirror. I'm telling you, it's the Mm -hmm. mirror. They're like a portal or a vessel of some sort. Yeah, probably. Or maybe it's like how some of these things don't appear to the naked eye unless captured through a literal lens. They need something slightly removed from our naked eye. And a mirror could be enough of a launch pad or whatever for them to make an appearance or something. Yeah, definitely. You know, it got me thinking, um, we have this road out here in Sacramento. It's called Dyer Lane. It's a very active location in regards to the paranormal. 
There's story mm-hmm. of witches, hauntings, and even ghosts that appear in the backseat of your car as you pass through the area. You can usually find them in your rearview mirror, smiling back at you. Now, not long ago, there was a body of a young woman that was found. Uh, she was dumped off of Dyer Lane, wrapped up in an inflatable mattress. Yikes. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories like this. These are true stories, by the way. Uh, in the 80s, a kid was stabbed to death during a gang fight. Uh, lots, lots and lots of terrible and terrifying stories about the area. I've been told so many different creepy stories and legends about Dyer Lane over the years. We should definitely check it out next time you're here. I've always wanted to. I've only visited it via Google Earth. But yeah. it looks so creepy because it's not very far removed from like the greater Sacramento area. It's pretty congested around there. But then there's this random strip of open nothingness where you would think they would build on or something but no that whole road is it's so creepy Mm -hmm. it's like littered in trash and graffiti and yeah no i haven't been down there obviously but i will happily go with you yeah i've been hearing stories my whole life about it um oh also in the 90s there was a guy that got shot to death while smoking weed with this other person who thought that he was an undercover cop it's a really scary place. <laughs> More of the story. Don't do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of the 90s, I've been having a recurring dream that my neighbors started leaving toys from my childhood just scattered out in their front yard and driveway, like completely covered as if they just tossed them out as trash. I asked them if I can please have the big green Power Ranger action figure that's just been chilling face down on top of their sprinkler box for a few months. And they get all pissed off and lecture me about how they are collectors and not resellers and slam the door in my face. A little ironic because I hate people coming to my door, but I'm offering you money, not trying to take your money. Yeah, usually they're looking for money. That I gotta say, if somebody showed up at my door offering me money for something in my yard, I'd probably sell it to him. But this is more of a, this is a nightmare. A little bit. Yeah, this isn't necessarily a good dream. Especially when you go on eBay and try to price match to see what these things oh actually God. cost. Yeah. Yeah. I had a one of those Megazord things, like an actual full-blown Megazord from the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I fell on hard times and I had to sell it. But I got a good like 300 bucks for it. And this was several years ago. I'm not hurting for $300 anymore, but I kind of wish I kept it. Yeah, definitely. I, I I look at a lot of the things that I collect that way. They've gained so much value, especially all my old video game consoles and cartridges. I look at them and I'm like, oh, wow, that's worth five times what I paid for it at the time, sometimes 10 times what I paid for it or even more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't think I would sell it for anything unless I absolutely had to. Yeah, no, not anymore. I don't hold it for the value. I hold it for, you know, sentimentality. That's yeah. the right word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We both have dozens of Nintendo 64, NES, mm-hmm. SNES games. It's so much fun. Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before the big boom took off. And now it's, oh, man, I hate the reselling market for vintage games, but it's ruined it. It's still fun. We got in pretty early, at least. Yeah. My wife used to work at a used record store that ended up being like a used everything store. They would get movies, video games, everything. Uh, and during that time, like, the mid 20 teens the boom hadn't hit yet and they were selling nes games for like a dollar to two dollars a piece and we're talking good games i I just remember while she was working there thinking she gets store credit she gets a discount this is all basically free whenever i want it so you know i'll have her bring something home when i want to play it it'll always be there 
Right. <laughs> the store closed down, was demolished, and then the bubble reached its max. And now video games cost more than ever in history. They cost more than new, you know? Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I made a big mistake there. I should have just got it all while it was good for the getting. Yeah. If you look in the old ads, like from Toys R Us back in our day, I didn't realize that some of these games were like $60, $70 at times, and that's not mm-hmm. taking inflation into account. That's $90. Yeah. 60 bucks was actually 60 bucks back then. <laughs> I know. You would go to the store and you would spend $60, $70 on a video game like, I don't know, Dick Tracy, because I love the movie. I'm going to love the game. Then you take it home and like 15 minutes into playing it, you're like, this is the worst thing I've ever played in my life. Like Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're stuck <laughs> with the game. Such a bad game. And you're yeah. stuck with it because, you know, parents will buy you a game once every few months or so because they're so expensive. And you just, you play, the, you get the worst games because you buy them because it's based on a property that you love. And then even though it sucks, you keep playing it over and over and over and over, and over again. And you learn to love it in spite of its flaws. Correct. It's just kind of like the lesson of just being happy with what you have and making it fun. Just make it fun, mm-hmm. like my grandma used to say. Um, moving on though, for the haunted hostel story that I told. So the Milford Sound Fjord in New Zealand, it's one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever viewed from my computer chair on my computer screen, (laughs) but it does have this huge, beautiful body of water. And I envy Abby and her companion as they got to travel there. I do not, however, envy the creepy or I guess you could say uncanny experience that they had with what I'm assuming is a Swedish shapeshifter. Demonic meatball. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. I love it. It's so stupid. I had to. It was low hanging fruit. (laughs) Um, So I found it interesting that the fellow hikers happened to be Swedish and found near a large body of water because while I couldn't find any kind of shape-shifting beings of note in New Zealand, on the Nordic side of things, there's a long history of folklore surrounding a shape-shifting spirit that just so happens to reside near a body of water. They're called the Nixie. Hmm, that's a new one. They're a bit like a siren. They like to lure their victims in with their good looks and Often they'll be playing some kind of enchanting music, uh, and they usually strike by drowning the person. But, you know, some of the details are a bit different, but they're just similar enough. The woman was Swedish. She was found near a large body of water, and she tried to lure the author in by shape-shifting into their sister, I think it was. Hmm. I think we could be dealing with a Nixie here. If you do some simple Googling, you'll find that there are all kinds of variations of the Nixie across different cultures. So it's not too far of a stretch. I'm labeling this one variation of a Nixie, and I'm putting it in my top five favorite cryptids of the show. It's up there with the bunny man for me. That's good. Yeah, I like that one. I think that's a a good opportunity for Trixie Mattel to make a good pun and be Nixie Mattel this Halloween. There you go. I wanted to touch on the Indigo Man story real quick. Quite a while ago, I read about a family from Kentucky that has blue skin, and they've had it for generations due to some genetic trait. So when the author mentioned Kentucky in the story, something clicked, and I looked into it some more. Sure enough, the family is known as the Fugates, and they've been living there since the 19th century. So Emma, if you're listening, I hope this ties things together for you. 
let your coworkers know that the Indigo Man is more likely than not a member of the Fugate family. <laughs> so they're blue? They're blue. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Blue Man group, but without the music. Maybe they play music. I don't know. I don't want to sell them short. Yeah. Um, but to round things off, I just want to touch on the story from author The Number Zero. So the story I shared this week about the extremely long dream where this author experiences their death. And it's very tragic and very scary. But what stood out to me about this dream was that the dreamer found themselves in the apartments that they used to live in when they were younger. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't tell you how many vivid and moving dreams that I've personally had where I find myself in a very specific older apartment that my family used to live in. I was about to say, we've had stories like that where people revisit old places where they used to live. And me personally, I've had several of those visiting my childhood home and something's just a little bit off. It's strange how that is a recurring thing for a lot of people. Right. Um, I, I think it's because I went through so many of life's changes there. I lived there from the ages of 8 to 17, and those are really important years of your life. I think maybe the mind traverses to these locations and dreams because of things like this. It has to be. We hold on to a lot in our past and our subconscious and mm -hmm. yeah, they, they shape us. So of course they're going to be prominent and on our mind, whether we fully realize it or not, they, they actualize themselves one way or another. Definitely. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this week's episode. This week you have heard Haunted Hostel in New Zealand by Abby. The first time my mom visited me by Colleen. I experienced my own death by the number zero. The Indigo Man by Emma D. Humanoid, Crawler, Cryptid Encounter by Girthquake. And finally, The Smiling Woman by Jess. All of the stories you've heard this week were narrated and produced with the permission of their respective authors. Make sure you send your stories in to stories at oddtrails.com. And if you'd like to get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes at a higher bit rate, make sure you head over to patreon.com forward slash oddtrails to sign up today. And don't forget to check out the new episodes of my other podcasts, Let's Not Meet a True Horror Podcast, Welcome to Paradise It Sucks, and the Old Time Radio Cast, all at crypticcountypodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. See y'all next week. Stay safe. Peace out.